Hello, hello, and welcome to the Jammy History Podcast, the show that aims to spread the truth about the history you didn't know. I am your host, Jamie, and for this episode, we are going to be covering the greatest heist of the 14th century. This is the tale of Richard of Pudlicott and how he managed to steal right under the nose of Edward I of England. But before we get to the episode, it's time for an apology. Guys, listeners, friends, it's been a while, hasn't it? I haven't made an episode in quite some time, and I can only apologise for that. Uni has been hectic as of late, and it's not going to get any easier during this time. But I still wanted to get an episode out while I still could, and so I thought I would talk about a little tale that I'd found that I thought you would all enjoy. I would also like to apologise to good old Richard of Pudlicott himself, because as I'm sure you're going to find out, I will probably be mispronouncing his name a lot during the course of this episode. It's just one of those names that doesn't roll off the tongue very well. So if I make mistakes, I apologise, Richard. I know you're meant to say it as Pudlicott, but uh, I'll probably make mistakes along the way and we'll just have to live with it. As you're probably going to find out over the course of this episode, uh, this one will be a little bit more unscripted, just because I haven't had the time to formulate a proper cohesive script. But it allows me to talk in a little more of a loosey-goosey, conversationalist kind of way. So if you prefer this style of podcasting, do let me know, and we'll make it the norm from here on out. But enough about me and all these updates. It's time to talk about what you really want to hear. It is time for the tale of Richard and the Heist. If you've ever seen a big heist film in your local cinemas or on DVD, one of the things they love to focus on are the motivations of the people committing the heist. They can't just be acting as simple thieves who just want money. They need to have a reason. A family relative who needs urgent funds for a medical treatment, something to save their house. Can't just be a case of, I want money, so I took it. And for the case of Richard, even he had his reasons behind why he wanted to steal from the king of all people. The context behind Richard's heist is one of war and taxation, perhaps the two greatest evils of medieval society. For the king of England at this time was none other than Edward I, also known as Edward Longshanks, because he was a very tall boy, towering over the rest of medieval society. And if you also know anything about Edward, you will know that he was also referred to as the Hammer of the Scots. And that nickname very much explains what he's up to during this period. About five years before the heist begins, Edward marches up north to Scotland so that he can fight the Scots. He's got Scottish nobility to fight. He's got Mel Gibson that he has to fight up there, yelling freedom wherever he goes. He's got a lot on his plate, and it keeps him up there for years and years. And if you're 
up there for years and years. Naturally, you can't run the country effectively if everything that you need is based in London. And so what he did was he moved the royal court and the majority of the royal treasury up to York, and he set it up as the capital for now where he would do all the running, all the business that he needed so that he could continue fighting the Scots effectively. But wars are expensive, and Edward, not being one to back down and wanting to keep up the fight, decided that the only way to get through this was taxation, 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 striking at the workers and the clergy. And most people were affected very severely by his taxes in a very futile attempt to keep sending men into the war machine. One of those that was affected very heavily by the taxes was Richard of Pudlicott, who at the time of Edward's invasions of Scotland, he was actually a clerk working at the royal court, but not up at York, he was still down in London, still working down near Westminster Abbey. And despite what you may think, working in the royal court as a clerk does not exactly give you many bonuses. In fact, it didn't really pay much well at all. And so Richard wasn't able to keep up with the increasing rates of taxation. And so he left his job as a clerk. And instead, he became a traveling merchant. He was selling wool and butter across the country. But it turns out he's not a very good merchant and he struggles to make ends meet amidst the rising taxes and the rising prices. So what is a simple travelling merchant to do? Richard was still allowed to hang around the Royal Palace and Westminster Abbey, and one day he saw Edward leaving, once again to go to the north and continue his war against the Scots. And he noticed that there was a ladder just lying around there on the open ground. And so he picked up the ladder and placed it on the side of the chapter house. He then climbed up the ladder and went towards one of the open windows that was just being held open by a cord. He wriggled through the window and using the cord, he lowered himself down into the chapter house and he saw that there was a very nice silver plate on the side. And so he just picked up the plate, left the chapter house and went on to sell the plate for some money. And just like that, Richard had just done his first ever heist. And the plate in itself wasn't worth much, or at least not enough to keep him sustained during this time of high taxation. But it got him thinking. If he was able to successfully steal a plate from Westminster Abbey and from the royal palaces, then wouldn't it be possible that he could steal maybe just a little bit more? Maybe something more substantial, something that could keep him going for longer without having to steal again. And this line of questioning brought Richard to the conclusion that if he planned it out properly, he could rob from the treasury itself. Now, it's quite a jump <laughs> to go from stealing one plate to stealing the treasury, but he had some ideas about how he was going to do it. But Jamie, I hear some of you ask, I thought the treasury had been moved up to York, and you're partially correct. It turns out that Edward I had two royal treasuries. He had the treasury at home, also known as the wardrobe, which was a little section attached to Westminster Abbey, which very much served as an administrative department, and they kept a small amount of the treasury there, 
almost as a sort of federal reserve as one way of putting it. And then they had the treasury from home, the treasury on the go, as I like to call it. And that is the one he had based up in York. And that's the one that he was using to fund the expensive wars against Scotland. So obviously, trying to break into the one at York would be a bit of an issue because Edward is there, all the royal guards are there. But the one at Westminster Abbey, the one that was known as the wardrobe, that one was a little less well guarded. And so Richard concluded that if you were going to steal from one of them, that would be the best one to do it. But he wasn't going to go around this venture alone. He needed a crew. And I hope that editor Jamie is going to put some great heist level music at this section as he builds up the crew. And we go through all of the members that were involved in the heist. There is a knock at the door. A man opens the door and sees that his good friend Richard Opodlicott is standing outside. This man is William Palmer, the deputy keeper of Fleet Prison. This man had a very useful skill. He could shelter the thieves from inside the royal palace walls by hiding them out of the prison. And it was for this reason that Richard clued him in on the plan, a man he could trust. But securing a safe hideout means nothing if you are unable to complete the heist in the first place. In order to do this heist, Richard planned to break through 13 inches of stone, and for that, you would need a mason. And so, Richard turned to a mason known as John of St. Albans, who had the knowledge and the expertise to get through any of the strongest walls in the land, I think. I assume so. I assume Richard didn't ask a nobody for this position. I assume he asked someone who was skilled at this job. But you don't just need an expert in masonry to commit this heist. You need an expert in thievery itself. And for that, Richard turned to a man known as John Rippingdale, who already had a reputation for pulling off elaborate heists, although nothing quite as bold as this one was going to be. This man had already earned a nickname through his activities. He was known as the Chaplain, for the amount of times that he had broken into churches and stolen what was inside. His expertise in thievery made him a fine addition to Richard's collection. After this point, we run out of the named accomplices, but it's clear from the way the Richards heist went that it couldn't have just been this many, and it's likely that he roped in a number of goldsmiths and even corrupt guards to play along with this whole heist, and in return, they'd get a very generous reward indeed. But there was one more thing that Richard needed, the last gem in his affinity gauntlet of thievery, something that would definitely ensure victory. And it turns out it's the most unlikely of things you would expect to bring, for his plan depended on the large quantity of hemp seed. Why would he want a bunch of hemp seed? Where was this heist going? Well, you're about to find out in a bit. The crew has been assembled. The operation is about to commence. Edward is still far off in York and has no idea about what's going to happen to the money he has left in Westminster. It was time for Richard of Podlicott to cement his name as one of the greatest thieves of the 14th century. 
The narrative of what happened on the heist mainly comes from one person, one source, and that is Richard's own account of how he was able to do the heist. The tale begins a couple of months before the actual heist day, and Richard goes over to Westminster Abbey. He goes and stands just outside where the wardrobe would be, and he stands by the wall, and he starts to do a little bit of gardening. This is where all those hemp seeds are going to come into play. He scatters the seeds on the ground, he then packs up his things, and he leaves. And he doesn't go back to that spot until April. And it's during those dark nights in April that he goes back to that spot in the courtyard, goes up to the wall, and he begins to chisel away at the wall, bit by bit, breaking a little bit off each night he's there. But Jamie, I hear some of you ask, if you're going to be so bold as to dig a hole in the middle of the courtyard, surely someone would see you, right? But it just so happens that after the few months that he was absent, those plants, those weeds had grown, and they now created a thick enough foliage to cover where Richard had planned to start digging the hole into the wardrobe. It was the perfect cover. But it carries on going bit by bit each night, until it is the 24th of April, and on that night, Richard manages to make it all the way through into the wardrobe. He steps inside, and he is surrounded by wealth. Baskets of it, literally all put into baskets all for him very nicely. There's plates, there's gems, there's coins, there's the finest of riches that Richard probably could only have imagined up until that point, and he was captivated by what he saw so captivated that he decides he needs to spend a little bit of time there just to bask in the greatness, the glory that he is standing in. And you might imagine that he would spend, you know, a couple of hours with this wealth, then he'd grab what he could get and go. No. So Richard entered the vault, or Richard entered the treasury on the 24th of April, and he doesn't leave that room until the morning of the 26th of April. He spends over a day inside that room, just basking in the gold, in the riches. He's loving every minute of this. And I don't blame him. He's worked so hard for this moment. But after that time, he grabs what he can of several, several baskets worth, and he begins to take it out. And over time, he takes away a very substantial amount of money, and he distributes it to his fellow members of the crew, who Although don't play an active role in the actual robbery, it's clear that they must have advised Richard enough on what he was supposed to be doing during this time. They all get their share and they hide out at Fleet Prison for a couple of days until they can start slipping away a little bit more unnoticed over time. And for that, they are free. They've done it. But how much did they steal? Are you ready for this? How much do you imagine they managed to take in this one fell swoop? If you guessed it was £100,000, you would be correct. That is how much Richard took. But with the way the money conversion is, he took £100,000 worth of medieval wealth. In modern day terms, he had managed to take an about £30 billion worth of wealth. And that is just a staggering amount. It's actually one year's worth of taxes for Edward. That's how much they managed to steal in one go. That is one hell of a raid, and I respect it a lot. Normally, this is where the heist film would end. 
with them basking in all the wealth that they had stolen. £30 billion. I'm going to keep emphasizing that number because that is just an insane amount to comprehend. In one go, this poor wool merchant struggling to make ends meet was now one of the richest people in London at the time, probably. But this would be where the film should end. They run off into the sunset, the music begins to blare. But unfortunately for Richard, the story for him doesn't end here. Because people notice the fact that there is now £100,000 worth of gold missing from the treasury. Although they don't notice this right away. It's not an immediate thing to spot. It's not like someone walked in there and saw a massive gap in the pile and go, hmm, I think the money's been taken. No, they only figure out that someone has managed to break into the wardrobe vault and take the money when they start seeing the money showing up in places that it clearly shouldn't be present at. A fishmonger catches a bit of gold in his net. That gold looks like it should have come from the king's vault. Oh, it has. Ah, very interesting. There are a couple of goldsmiths now going around London with vast amounts of wealth that they couldn't possibly have been able to afford before, but have mysteriously all shown up very recently. Then you find bits of gold showing up in brothels, in pubs, all of this very expensive quality, well, riches, these jewels, these gold, these plates, these items, everything that they've been taken everything that was showing up. And that's what made people realize that, oh, I think someone robbed the king while he wasn't here. And as you can imagine, King Edward wasn't very happy when he found out about this and began doing what all kings would do in this situation, which is just start going a bit willy-nilly with the executions. He casted a very wide net for people he believed to have been involved in the robbery and executed them. It was a very quick affair, very quick trials, but they weren't yet sure on who the main perpetrators were. So they set up an inquiry, an investigation, and they started to try and hunt down for who was the mastermind behind this project, or who even any of the ringleaders were. And the inquiry eventually leads up to Richard of Puttlicott. They actually do figure out that he is the one that was behind this. It's quite an impressive feat for them, right, given the time period. This would be something that even in the modern day would be quite tricky to track down, I imagine. But it's fine. Richard will have left the country by now, right? He's got so much money. He's got so much wealth. Go anywhere you want. Evade capture. No, he's still in London. He doesn't leave home. He just stays there with all of this wealth and gets a little surprised when they figure out he's the perpetrator and they come to arrest him. They arrest him, they bring him to trial and they ask him how he did it. At first he denies, obviously, he understands what's going to happen if he confesses, but the jury keep pressing him. They're not going to let him get away with this, so they press him and they press him. So eventually he does give in and he gives the account of the robbery that I have just shared with you, that he planted all those bushes, all those weeds. He dug through the wall bit by bit each day and made off with the vast sum of money. Richard of Puddicott took pride in the fact that it was all him. The whole operation was him. Everything that was done was him. He was the mastermind behind it and he was the sole participant behind it. 
and he was very adamant that he was the only one involved. Now, we do know the names of, of other members involved in the heist, but the narrative with them, there isn't one. There is no narrative where they are actually involved as active participants of the heist. The only one we've got is the one that Richard gives at his trial, and in it, He's clearly edited out all of his fellow compatriots, put in a bid just to keep them alive, because if their names were revealed, then they were obviously going to die as well. So in that sense, you see a very real honor amongst thieves going on here. Richard refuses to sell out his comrades, which is again a very respectable thing to do. Sadly, it doesn't save him, and he is executed for this crime. And it's a very gruesome death for him. He is hung for this, but to make it worse, he is then flayed. And just as a warning, the legend goes that his skin was then used to decorate one of the doors of Westminster Abbey, just to serve as a reminder for anyone who would dare try to steal from the king. Now, obviously, I'm not so sure that they actually did use his skin to decorate a door. But the idea that they would have done it, or the idea that they did do it, would have spread the rumour going around of what happened to Richard the Pudlicott when he dared steal from the king. And if you were a prospective thief back then, and you heard that's what happened to Richard, you wouldn't even dare consider doing the same thing for fear of what was going to happen to you if you were caught. And Richard very well could have evaded capture to begin with if he had just left the country. And I'm a bit confused as to why he never did, but it must have been the fatal mistake that led to his inevitable capture. And with that, the saga of Richard of Pudlicott comes to a close, and the legend of his heist would live on. Thank you very much for listening to this episode. I hope you've enjoyed it. This has been a fun one to make, just a little one uh, on the side while my uni work and essays are piling up almost up to the roof at this rate. But I do hope to keep up with making episodes whenever I can. Later on this month, I will be doing an episode with Patrick from A Little History Podcast and also from Will and Patrick from the Cloak and Dagger Podcast. We're coming together as the Avengers of the podcast world. And when we make the episode, it's obviously going to be a great laugh. So keep your eyes and ears out for that, because when it comes out, I'm sure you will enjoy it. And if you have enjoyed this episode, then please do rate the episode, share it wherever you can. And then I also have social media accounts that you can follow. I have an Instagram, I have a Twitter, I have a Facebook page. All of those will be in the description. I have a YouTube account as well. So be sure to check that out. I upload the podcast episodes on there as well. And then I also have a Patreon, which uh, the link will be in the description. If you did enjoy and you want to support the podcast in any way, then please do go on to the Patreon and uh, subscribe to it. Like the wonderful historic hills Lara and my own dad already have. But for now, I hope you've enjoyed this. And I will see you all in the next episode. 